walk in the light. All of these are terms that describe our ongoing rapport with God, sometimes referred to as fellowship. It is enjoying that intimate relationship uh, with the Lord based on our regeneration, our new life in Christ. But we still sin. And when we sin, that rapport is broken. That fellowship no longer has the intimacy that it has when we're walking by the Spirit or abiding in Christ. So we are to confess our sins. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give each person the opportunity to make sure they are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together before your throne of grace and to ask your guidance and direction on our time uh, fellowshipping together in the study of your word, focusing upon what you have revealed to us, because we know that it has been revealed to us through the agency of God, the Holy Spirit, and the human authors to teach us, to instruct us, to challenge us, to rebuke us in areas of wrong thinking, and to put us on the correct path of righteousness. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word and challenge us with what we study today. Father, we also continue to pray for our nation. We pray for uh, godly leaders, leaders who understand and know the word, your, your word and who will have the courage of their convictions to step out and to lead us, both in terms of local politics as well as state and federal politics. We are desperately in need of, uh, of insightful leaders who have the boldness, who have uh, the courage to take a stand and to lead us out of the morass that we've been in as a result of years of secular humanism, years of moral relativism, and years of rejection of your word. And the only hope that we have as a nation is through, through your grace uh, changing things and turning us around. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to focus and think through what we're studying in this class. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians, and we're now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the first chapter, we focused on a number of things, but primarily we took time to focus on uh, the spiritual skills that have been given to us uh, in the pages of Scripture. These ten spiritual skills are basically a summary of the different ways God has provided for every believer in the in the church age uh, to live and to surmount problems and challenges and difficulties uh, that we have in this life. The greatest challenge we have is just fighting the three basic enemies that are set forth in Scripture. The first is the devil, Satan. Satan is, uh, as Hal Lindsey put it in the title of his book, Alive and Well on Planet Earth. First Peter chapter 5 says that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
and he is the arch enemy of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ and of every single believer uh, walking on the face of this earth. Satan's thinking, the kind of thinking that energized his rebellion against God, focuses on two things. It focuses on his own pride, his own arrogance, his own self-will, asserting it over against the self-will of God. On the other hand, uh, it also focuses on his antagonism uh, toward God. So if you like alliteration, it's arrogance and antagonism. And the thought systems that are built upon uh, arrogance and antagonism are the primary thought systems of the world, human philosophies, human religions, whether they're secular atheism or whether they're involved in the uh, high ritual of Roman Catholic theology that is divorced from the scripture, or whether it's involved in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, or Mormonism. These are all systems of thought that are based on, number one, arrogance. It, it, they emphasize human ability to somehow solve problems, to solve the basic problem of sin in the life, and to somehow impress God with their, with their basic goodness. So they're grounded on arrogance, and then they're also grounded on antagonism. That is antagonism to the Word of God, antagonism to the truth of Scripture. And every one of these systems either overtly and totally rejects this, this uh, Scripture, the um, books of the Bible as the Word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books is the Word of God. Uh, they either overtly reject that or covertly reject it. You often have cults cults such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and several others who come along and say, well, we think that's that's the Bible, but we've got a newer uh, version. We've got a corrected version, and this is a better version. And so they always say, yes, but. And with the but, they sacrifice and they minimize and they show disrespect for the Word of God. But this is the environment in which Christians live and exercise. This is where we have our our lives. We're living in this these systems of thought, and the Bible describes all of these various systems of thought that 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 are grounded upon arrogance and uh, antagonism as the world system. And there are many different manifestations of the world system. You have manifestations of the world system in these religions I've just mentioned, but also in philosophies. And you have all kinds of philosophies now after uh, thousands of years of human intellectual activity. Uh, basically, we summarize them as rationalistic philosophies that think that the human mind is capable of understanding all of the breadth and depth and uh, complexity of the universe. We have those who reject rationalism and put their emphasis on forms of empiricism and think that the human mind is capable of correctly interpreting all data. We also have those who think that, that neither rationalism nor empiricism provide an answer, but the answer is found in just our own intuitive ability, and that's called mysticism, that somehow we're, we can get in touch with the heartbeat of an impersonal universe. And so religions all flow out of those kinds of ideas, as do world philosophies. 
and Christians, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, are in the world. That is, we are called to minister within this framework of the cosmic system, the various cultures that have been produced, whether you're talking about the culture of India that's produced from the religious system of Hinduism, or whether you're talking about the culture in other Asian countries that are the result of Buddhism, or whether you're talking about uh, uh, African uh, cultures that are based upon uh, spiritism and animism and other forms of polytheism, all of these different different uh, cultures have religious foundations, and the cultures are a result of that. Uh, you had the same kind of thing in the biblical world, in the ancient world. You had all kinds of different, uh, different uh, philosophical systems as well as religious systems. And it was into that milieu that the Apostle Paul and his uh, companions took the word of God, the absolute truth of the living God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is called I Am, who has no beginning and no ending. This is the God whose gospel, whose good news they took to the world. And that immediately engendered a confrontation, a confrontation of truth against error, taking the good news of Jesus Christ into the world. But there's a third enemy, and that third enemy we call the flesh, or the Bible calls the flesh, and that's a reference to our sin nature, which is basically oriented towards arrogance. That's the core value of the sin nature, is me first. It's all about me. It's it's arrogance. It's I am and what I want, and that drives the nature of every single human being. And so this causes us to gravitate uh, immediately towards areas of our comfort zone where we are also, because also we are dominated by fear. Fear was the very first emotion that is expressed after the fall of Adam and Eve. When God came, as he did every day in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that every day God came and he had a, a, a class, as it were, with Adam and Eve, as God is instructing them about this magnificent creation that he has provided for the human race. And every, so every day God came and he would talk with Adam and Eve. And one day he came and he couldn't find them and they were hiding. Of course, God knew exactly where they were. He said, where are you? And the reason he asked the question wasn't to discover something he didn't know, but to point out that they were not uh, where they were supposed to be, that something had changed. They were hiding from God. And Adam said, well, we heard the sound of your voice in the garden and we hid because we were afraid. So fear is the counterpart emotion to our own arrogance, even though we're setting uh, ourselves up to be uh, the ultimate uh, be-all and end-all of the universe. It scares us to death. Because of sin, we have uh, a profound vulnerability which we seek to uh, cover up. We seek to camouflage as we suppress uh, the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So as we face these three enemies, we as Christians have been given the responsibility to go out and have a ministry in the world. And so the world is going to be hostile to us, and the uh, corollary reaction from our sin nature is fear. Uh, 
We don't want to be in a position where we are uh, opposed by hostile people, hostile forces who are arrayed against us, and all of the threats that that may come with that, all of the uh, the ways in which they seek to take away our security, take away our jobs, take away our homes, take away our lives, take away uh, our health, perhaps. Uh, we see this currently today in areas of the Middle East that are coming under the control uh, of ISIS. And this radical Islamic force as they are persecuting, killing, uh, torturing uh, Christians and destroying anything that is reminiscent of, of Christianity. And so if you're going to stand for Christianity, it may put your very life in jeopardy, just as it did uh, these uh, uh, nine uh, students at Roseburg, Oregon, who were uh, gunned down maliciously by this um by this shooter who uh, caused, asked everybody to identify if they were, uh, what their religious belief was, and if they were Christians, he shot them in the head. And this, this just shows that when you take a stand as a Christian, you are taking your stand against the powerful forces of darkness, the forces of Satan, the forces of the fallen angels, and all of those who are allied with them, uh, those who are allied with them under the guise of religion and good works, as well as those who are allied with Satan more overtly as they oppose any and all all religion. And this is the war, the kind of world that every Christian goes into. We've been we've been protected from that in this country for the last uh, 300, uh, 400 years, ever since the founding of this this country. Ever since the first uh, colonists came, they came to establish an area that would be free of government persecution, free of government uh, opposition to the gospel, where people could believe what they wanted to believe without fear of any anybody uh, interfering with their religious convictions and their religious practice in the marketplace, in the public marketplace. And yet today we see example after example after example where Christians are being pushed into a corner, pushed into a closet, that they are being attacked, they're being assaulted, they're being brought into court simply by putting forth their religious beliefs. And this is happening uh, in the United States uh, in the United States of America. So Paul is operating in that kind of environment. That's really a backdrop to understanding some of the very personal things that he communicates to the Thessalonians in this epistle. And in 1 Thessalonians, we find one of the more personal epistles that, that Paul writes, and in it we get a window into his soul, and by application it helps us to understand some of the spiritual challenges that every one of us uh, faces. We learn uh, five things uh, when we look at Scripture and we think about what Paul is talking about here at the very beginning as he talks about his own ministry. We're reminded, number one, that every single believer has a ministry. Every one of us has a ministry from the second that we are saved, when we are baptized by God the Holy Spirit, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit gives each and every one of us a spiritual gift. 
And whether you know what your spiritual gift is or not, you are called upon by the Lord Jesus Christ to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to a place that in your maturation you will begin to serve the body of Christ, serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the body of Christ in order to uh, and be part of that maturation process that takes place within a local church. So every believer has a ministry because every believer has at least one spiritual gift. Now, it may be a more public gift, uh, like a gift of, of evangelist, a gift of pastor-teacher. Uh, it may be a more private gift, someone who has the gift of faith, and that may be manifest in prayer. Someone who has the gift of giving, and that's manifested in privacy. Uh, but others are more public, and then there's those that fall somewhere in between. People who have the gift of encouragement, the gift of administration. Sometimes those are visible, and sometimes they're not. Second thing we see in terms of ministries that every believer is expected to grow, to mature in Christ so that they can use that spiritual gift. It doesn't come fully formed and functional uh, at the instant that we're saved. It has to be developed, and it develops only as we take in the Word of God uh, under the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God, and then it is God the Holy Spirit who matures us, and then uh, we express uh, our maturation through these uh, spiritually enhanced gifts. Third thing we note is the role of the pastor-teacher. Just like the role in the early church of the apostle and the prophets, the role of the pastor-teacher and the evangelist is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. The pastor's role is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's the everyday believer sitting in the pews that carries out the work of the ministry. Some of you have gifts of mercy, and you are the ones who should be uh, going to the hospitals. You're the ones who should be visiting families during the time of loss, the time when someone has died. You are the ones who, when someone is going through a crisis, your gift of mercy is is to be used at that time, and that's not necessarily a publicly known uh, known gift. Uh, that's one of the ways in which that's expressed. If you have the gift of giving, again, that is developed as you come to understand uh, what's involved in the spiritual gift of giving, ordering your life so that you can give uh, in the support of ministries and the support of of the local church. So the role of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints through teaching the word of God so that we can grow by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, we can properly exercise our ministry. The goal in ministry has nothing to do with numbers. This is the fourth point. The goal in ministry has absolutely nothing to do with numbers. I remember in a church I pastored many years ago that I had a constant friction with the uh, board of elders. It was a, an elder church, but it wasn't necessarily an elder uh, elder uh, rule church. It was an, more of an elder-led church, but we always took every major decision before the congregation, so it was kind of a blend. But three of the four elders in the church, or five elders if you counted me, three of the five elders 
were businessmen. They were entrepreneurs. And there's something about an entrepreneur that is distinctive. They're extremely independent. They believe that any and every problem and obstacle can be overcome just through the practice of sound, sound biblical, I mean, a sound business principles. And while there's a certain business dimension to the local church, it's not run like a church. You can't sit down at the beginning of each fiscal year and establish certain quantifiable, measurable goals in terms of of how many people come, how much money uh, comes in. You, you can't quantify the ministry in that way. And yet that's, that's where these guys were coming from. That was their, uh, that was their worldview from the culture in which they operated five or six days a week in terms of their business. And they would always want me to create some kind of business plan and some, and write out goals and objectives. And I say, the only thing that we can do with any kind of goal is that if it's a measurable goal, it has to be uh, achievable, and we have to be able to reach that. I said, you can sit down all day long, year after year, and say, well, I want to have a growth of 10% in my church. Now, there are churches that do that, and uh, these are church growth type of churches. They're not focused on letting the Lord build a church. They're focused on on their own techniques, and we have to remember that Jesus said, I will build my church. Remember, he said that in Matthew 16 to Peter, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And then he told Peter in, in, in John 21, he said, you feed the sheep. We've gotten this all backwards now. Nobody's feeding the sheep, but you have a lot of so-called pastors out there trying to do Jesus' job of building the church. You can't do that. The Apostle Paul does give us one measurable, quantifiable uh, uh, standard. Uh, he does give us one metric for uh, evaluating our success in ministry, and that's in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, because Christians are all considered stewards. We've been given something that we are to use. We've been given time. We've been given money. We've been given a spiritual gift. So we are stewards of that which God has given us. And Paul says it is required of students that one be found faithful. So the criteria for a pastor, for an evangelist, for the everyday person, believer sitting in the pew is are you faithful to God? Are you faithful to the gift that God has given you? Are you pursuing spiritual growth? Is that the highest priority in your life, your relationship with God? Uh, is God going to look at your life, evaluate it, and said you have been a faithful believer? Now, that doesn't mean you don't fail. Remember, King David failed, and he failed miserably, but God said he was a man after his own heart. We all sin. We all have sin natures, and we will all fail many times, and uh, and God just looks for a heart that is focused on him. And uh, you compare David with some of the other kings of Judah. They, their heart wasn't for God. They failed uh, many times in the same way David failed, but their bottom line wasn't man, I, 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 was, was not, I, I want to please God, I blew it, but I want to please God. David's bottom line was, I keep blowing it, but I want to please God. That's what really drives me. And God understood that was the motivation 
of his soul. And that means that David was faithful even though he committed all of those sins. He was basically judged, evaluated by God as being faithful. That's what this is saying. Are we faithful to the word of God as a pastor? I have to ask myself, am I faithful to the education that God provided for me? Am I faithful in my uh, continuing to improve on my skills in the original languages? Am I continuing to read and understand uh, things theologically and understand the scripture? Am I faithful in carrying out that mission that God gave me to equip the saints for the work of ministry? If you're on the other side of the pulpit, then your objective is to uh, is to learn the word and apply the word to get involved in various areas of service in the body of Christ. Some are going to be areas that you're you're not quite so fond of, and others may be areas where you really excel. I'm reminded of a circumstance, a situation where someone uh, told me, said, I'd love to help, I'd love to do something, uh, just what do you need, and I will do it. And at that particular time, we were looking for uh, some folks to volunteer to help transcribing. And I said, well, we're looking for transcribers. Later on, I found out that this individual says, well, their, their heart just stopped. That was the last thing they wanted to do because it was just the kind of tedious work that just drove them absolutely nuts. That's fine. But other people just, just that's way they can exercise their spiritual gift of service. And God has shaped them in a way that where that was exactly what they wanted to do. Not everybody can do Every different uh, area of service within a local church, not everyone can be a teacher. Not everyone can get up in the pulpit and do a fabulous job expounding the Word of God. But a lot of folks can do a pretty decent job of it uh, just because they apply themselves. And remember, we're to teach one another, we're to admonish one another, we're to pray for one another. All of these things are part of our stewardship. And the one evaluation point that God has, his one method, is, are you faithful to the Word of God? Are you faithful to your service to me? Are you faithful to the way I have, I have gifted you? And so those points are critical to understand ministry. And then what we see here, the fifth thing I want to point out by way of introduction, is in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, we give insight into Paul's role of equipping the saints as that pushed him up against the opposition from Satan and the world system, Satan and the cosmic system. Every one of us has a ministry. If you're a mother, if you're a father, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a grandparent, you have a ministry within your family. You have opportunities within your family to teach the Word of God, and you're supposed to. You have opportunities within your family to uh, to emulate uh the Christian life to your children and to be part of that particular ministry. So when we talk about Paul's ministry and we get some insight into it here, it applies to each and every one of us. Now in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, we have what appears to be one sentence in the original Greek. Let me just read it to you and then we'll start breaking it down. He begins by saying, For you yourselves... No, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, 
But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, let's just stop a minute and just look at what he's saying. Now, in, in the New King James Version, they broke this into two sentences. It's actually a compound sentence in, in, in the Greek that is connected by an, an adversative conjunction. Uh, that's if you grew up on Sesame Street, you remember conjunction, junction, and you have words that join things, and you have words that separate things, and the word but separates things, but it's still joining two things that are that are uh, somewhat contrastive between verse 1 and verse 2. So verse 1 is an independent clause, verse 2 is an independent clause, and the thing he's saying in verse 1 is about our coming to you that it was not in vain, that it, there, there, it wasn't a meaningless ministry. It was short. Uh, Paul may have only been there uh, as short as five or six weeks, we don't know. It probably was not more than three or four months. It was a very short time, but it was an extremely productive time because ultimately production in ministry has to do with the work of God the Holy Spirit and not our work. We're just an instrument that God the Holy Spirit uses. So the first thing he's saying is when we came to you, it wasn't meaningless, but... He goes on to say, we were bold. Even after what we had gone through in Philippi, we were bold to speak the gospel to you. So these are the two thoughts that he's developing here. First of all, our coming to you wasn't meaningless. And second, we were bold to proclaim the gospel to you when we came. So let's just break this down just a little bit as we get into a little analysis. He starts off and he says, for you yourselves know something. Now it's important to note that, that in the Greek, with the verb here, oida, it's a second person plural, meaning y'all. But when he says this, he doesn't have to say, uh, yourselves. He doesn't have to add that. That's, that, that's sort of embedded within the form of the, of the Greek verb. But when you start adding a second person plural, uh, reflexive pronoun in there, that is intensifying this. He's really making a point of saying, you know this. You were aware of this. You were there. You were witnesses. You understood what went on and you watched as we ministered to you. You yourselves know this. And he uses a Greek word, oida. There's two primary words for knowing in Greek. Gnosko has the idea of coming to know something, but Oida emphasizes that this is something now that has become reflexive, almost intuitive knowledge within you. And so that's what he's appealing to here when he uses the word Oida. He says, you know this. You, you know this instinctively because you were there and you watch what, what went on, and you know that our coming to you was not meaningless. It was not in vain. So let's just review a, a little bit about what happened when Paul came to Thessalonica? Here's a map uh, showing the area of, of Greece in the ancient world, the area south of this, uh, basically south of this yellow line, a little further south, maybe maybe right about here. This area north was Macedonia, or in Greek it's Macedonia. The area south of there was Achaia. And so when Paul came over on his second missionary journey, he came by... Um, 
by ship from Troas he came and landed at the port at Neapolis. And the first place that he went was Philippi. And there, we'll get into that in just a minute, there he faced a tremendous amount of opposition as well and was even uh, put in prison. And then when he left Philippi, he went down the Via Ignatia here, that's the yellow line, and he went through uh, Apollonia and Amphipolis, and he ends up over here at Thessalonica. So this is where Thessalonica is located. It was a major uh, port in the ancient world, and it was right on the Via Ignatia. So it was uh, right on the axis of commerce. All the east-west traffic coming out of Europe and then headed over to Asia, all of those caravans went through uh, Thessalonica as well as Philippi. So this is a major trade route. Commerce is very important, but it brings a lot of different people together. Uh, when we see these areas where there was a lot of commerce, we also discover that there was a large Jewish presence. It's, it's got a large business community, and this would uh, attract uh, the Jews to that particular particular area. So you had a group of Jews at Philippi. You also have a synagogue here uh, in Thessalonica. And we're told that when Paul came in verse 2 of uh, Acts 17, his custom, that means his normal operating procedure, was to go to synagogue. He would start with the Jews. That was his principle. It was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So he started there. Now, why in the world would, would he start with the synagogue? He would start with the Jews first of all, for a theological reason, that it was the Jewish people that God had called to himself to be the group through whom the uh, the Messiah would come, to be the ethnic group through whom scriptures would be revealed, and the group that would be the custodian of scripture. And the Messiah came uh, to the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jewish, uh, a Jewish Messiah. And because they were the custodians of Scripture in the synagogues, they studied Scripture, so there was already a frame of reference among these uh, Jews as to who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was. There should also have been a framework for understanding Messianic prophecy, the promises and the prophecies in the Old Testament that God would send a deliverer to Israel who would not only deliver them from their sins, but would pay the penalty for sins for the whole world. And as Isaiah 53 states, that it would be through him that that many would be justified, would be declared declared righteous. Now, the pagans, the non-Jews, the Gentiles in the area, wouldn't have any frame of reference. And this is what Paul ran into later on in Athens, was he trying to find a, a, a way to communicate to the pagans who didn't have any knowledge of the Old Testament, didn't have any knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he had to find a different starting point. We find that in some of the other places where Paul went. But when there was a Jewish community, he would start there and bring them the good news that the Messiah had come, that the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament had been fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so he would come and he would begin uh, to teach that uh, in the synagogue, knowing that there would be a percentage 
of Jews there that would respond to the gospel. There were probably Jews there who were already uh, Old Testament believers in the in the Old Testament sense, still looking for the Messiah, and they would easily uh, transfer over to become Christians and to trust in the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he would begin with a following of, of Jewish background believers. And that there would also be in the synagogue a group of proselytes, Gentiles, who in various degrees were seeking God. Some were just, just viewed as God seekers, sort of like Cornelius over in Acts 10 and 11. And others who had actually, uh, uh, gone through the process of conversion uh, to Judaism. And so these, these God-fearers, these God-seekers that were uh, uh, among the Gentiles would be uh, prepared. They would be open to responding to the gospel. So Paul went to the synagogues, and this was uh, pretty standard for his uh, ministry. Each place that he went, uh, he would go to that to the synagogue. And then we're told that for three consecutive Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Notice he doesn't argue theologically. He starts with the scripture. He takes them to the Old Testament, takes them to the Torah, and he, and he explains to them, uh, who Jesus is as, a, as Jesus of Nazareth and shows how he fulfills the promises and the prophecies uh, from the Old Testament. The main verb that's used here is the word reasoned. Reasoned is the Greek verb dialegomai, dialegomai rather, dialegomai, and dialegomai is where we get our English word dialogue. And it means to discuss something. It may even mean to debate something. It may even mean to argue uh, vociferously back and forth over a point, to dispute, discuss, uh, consider, reason, argue. All of these are, are covered by the word um, dialegomai. But he reasoned from the Scripture. So his starting point isn't some abstract philosophical principle about the existence of God because he's talking to Jews. They already accept, uh, putatively, they already accept the fact that, that, um, that the Bible, the Torah, is the Word of God. So he would reason with them uh, from the Scripture. Look at these other uh, examples here in, in Acts 17. Uh, 17, he's reasoning with the Jews in Berea and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily. So that's at Berea. Acts 18.4, he reasoned in the synagogue. Uh, this is in Corinth. Um, as well as in Ephesus. He went to Ephesus and he went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And so this is his standard uh, standard procedure. Now, when he's reasoning with them, how is he reasoning with them? And uh, the Scripture doesn't leave us to just guess as to how he does it. This is further explained in the next verse in Acts 17, verse verse 3. The verb, dialegomai, is further modified or explained by two participles that we find at the beginning of verse 3, explaining and demonstrating. So this is what he would do. This explains the content of his dialogue, the content of his discussion, the content of his uh, uh, debate 
with the Jews in the synagogue. He first of all explained things. This is the Greek word uh, dianoigo. Dianoigo means to open something up, uh, to unlock something at times. And what was he opening? He was opening up the Scripture. He was opening up the Scripture to explain... Um, who the, what the scripture said the Messiah would come and do, that the Messiah was to uh, suffer and rise again. He's also demonstrating that, uh, partithemi, uh, which means to set something before, to commend something, or to be, or set something out. So what is he doing? He's going through the Old Testament scripture. He's opening up the scripture. Uh, he's explaining what it means, and he's setting forth the basic things that the Old Testament said that, that would characterize the Messiah, things like the Messiah would be born of a virgin, things such as the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, the Messiah was to suffer. Where would he go to teach that? He would go to uh, Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 53 in order to teach there the suffering, uh, the suffering Messiah as well as Psalm 22 and other passages uh, in the Old Testament. He's following the same pattern that Jesus used after the resurrection when he sort of veiled his appearance before a couple of disciples who were on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about a 45-minute walk. And they didn't realize who that was, and they were all downcast and discouraged and depressed because uh, Jesus had been crucified and he was buried and they had believed in him and now they were confused and they, uh, th- they were depressed and discouraged. You just couldn't believe what had, uh, what had happened and they didn't know what to do. And so Jesus came up and without revealing who he was, he just began to talk to them about the scriptures, about the Old Testament scripture, the Torah, the uh, law, uh, the uh, Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And this is what it's referred to in beginning at Moses, that's the Torah, and all the prophets, that's the Nevi'im. He expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now there's a trend among evangelical scholars today to to minimize Old Testament prophecy. And you even have some professors at some of your favorite seminaries, not Schaefer Seminary, of course, but uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, Denver Seminary, a number of others, and they believe that, well, there's probably, there might be one Old Testament uh, Messianic prophecy, maybe two, but, but we know for sure probably Psalm 110.1 is the only real Messianic prophecy. But Jesus wouldn't agree with that. Uh, if that was the only prophecy in the Old Testament that's Messianic, then Jesus would have had a short conversation on the road to Emmaus. That could have taken all of 30 seconds, and he would have moved on down the road. But this is a 45-minute discussion, and he's going through all of the Messianic prophecies in Moses, the Torah, and in the Nevi'im, the former prophets, that's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, as well as the latter prophets, which is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. He doesn't mention the writings here. Psalms is from the writings of Psalm 110, was probably talked about, but, but the emphasis is on the Torah and the uh, prophets. And then 
In 20, Luke 24, 44, Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, because that was the first book in the Ketuvim, and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus is giving them Christology 101, uh, the Messiah in the Old Testament, and they understand that. So the emphasis that, that, that Paul had in Acts 17 was to show that the Messiah should suffer and die. And this was his standard procedure. Whenever he would go someplace, he would always focus on that. And we're reminded that this would become a problem when he was in the synagogue because in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, he said the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. And so that was uh, always something, uh, something difficult for them to get past was that the Messiah would come and suffer. But it was very clearly there in passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 20, and numerous others that he would be crucified and so this this was made clear now there were always going to be two responses whenever we are talking about the scripture we're going to have a response that is accepting and positive of the scripture or we're going to have a response that's negative and hostile now that degree of negativity and hostility may be overcome uh, through time as we talk about the scripture. I've had situations like that where I've uh, witnessed to somebody and they didn't want to hear it. They were antagonistic to it. They were unresponsive. But God the Holy Spirit took what I said and took his word and he used that to convince and convict them of the truth of scripture. Now that might take uh, a year, two, three, five, ten, twenty, even thirty years for that to work itself out. But God uses his His word. Think about the Apostle Paul. 30 seconds before Jesus Christ appeared to Paul on his way to Damascus as he was going to arrest, imprison, and execute Christians, those who trust in Jesus as Messiah, 15 seconds before Jesus appeared to Paul, you would have said there's no way in this life, that that radical Christian-hating Pharisee is going to ever convert to Christianity. You would be convinced, you would take bets that he was going to spend eternity in the lake of fire because of his hostility uh, to the gospel. And yet what happened? The Lord appeared to him, and he responded in faith, and he trusted in Jesus Christ uh, as the as the Messiah. So just because somebody may appear negative today, may be hostile today, don't think that they're the enemy. Don't write them off. Don't do anything. Continue to pray and continue to uh, talk about the gospel when and if you have the opportunity. The... <clears throat> The other, the positive response is what, what Luke emphasizes first in verse four. Some of them were persuaded. Now persuasion is something that comes as a result of your positive decision as you hear evidence. At each point, somebody presents something. Well, the Messiah was born of a virgin. And you hear the evidence for the virgin birth, and you're positive, you want to be persuaded, so you're persuaded, and then you believe it. 
And then you go to the next stage. He was born in Bethlehem. Well, what's the evidence? And you are willing to be persuaded. The evidence persuades you, and then you believe it. There's a correlation or relationship between persuasion and belief. But then you may reach something. Then you say, no, I just can't quite believe that he fed 5,000 people with just two fishes and five loves. Ah, that's That just stretches stretches my credulity. And at that point, you're thinking, well, uh, I don't have enough evidence. Well, they think about it a while, and then maybe later on they're persuaded. So so persuasion is part of what we do as believers, giving people the evidence for the hope that is in us. That's called apologetics, apologia, which means we have to understand and control the data and the information in Scripture and be able to present a rational logical case for our hope that Jesus of Nazareth is the uh, promised and prophesied Messiah. So some of them were persuaded. And then Luke says, a great multitude, a huge number of the devout Greeks, those would be the proselytes of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Notice he singles out the women and the Gentiles. Now what's interesting here is that in Judaism at that time, the men all were on one side of the synagogue. Usually there's a wall between them, and women are all on the other side. So what's happening here is the Gentiles and the women are responding, but a lot of the Jewish men are not responding. They, for various reasons, we don't know what they were. Some of them could have had their their authority threatened. They could have felt like, well, we know the scripture better than than this uh, upstart fair, former Pharisee from from uh, Israel, and so they weren't weren't being persuaded. So, uh, what Luke points out primarily is a great multitude of the Gentiles. And not a few. That's an idiom meaning there were quite a few uh, leading women joined Paul and Silas. And then in verse 5 we read, But the Jews were not persuaded, becoming envious. So they are reacting. And this is what you will often find in a hostile reaction is that it immediately deteriorates into mental attitude sins of anger, Resentment, and if we're right that the core emotional sin of the sin nature is fear, then they've got an inferiority complex, and they're fearful that they're wrong. They're fearful that uh, their their authority will be lost and their prestige will be challenged. And so, when people fear, they strike out in anger, resentment, bitterness, hostility towards others. They defame people. They will slander people. They will gossip about people. And all of these things are just the consequence of their reaction, not to you, but their reaction to the truth of the gospel. And so, we see the those who were positive were persuaded. Those who were negative were not persuaded, instead became envious. And then they entered into a conspiracy. And we see this today. We hear all these kinds of things from a complicit media about any time that a Christian says something. Uh, not long ago, uh, Dr. Ben Carson, who was running for, for president, uh, was uh, asked a question, was, uh, could, would he uh, support a Muslim for president? And the media just couldn't understand his answer. His answer was a personal answer, not a legal opinion. 
His personal answer was no. A Muslim is supposed to give his devotion to Sharia law. Sharia law is in contradiction to the uh, stipulations of the Constitution of the United States. You can't swear to defend the Constitution of the United States and be loyal to Sharia law at the same time. That violates a logical principle called the law of non-contradiction. You can't you can't swear allegiance to two contradictory things uh, at the same time. And so what happens is the media, out of their hostility to Christians and their hostility to conservatives, began to slander and malign and attack uh, Dr. Carson. And so whenever he went on a show after that, that was what they went after. And they tried to uh, try to get him uh, to... Uh, uh, to back off of what he had said and to change his mind, and he very calmly and very rationally held, held his line. But this is what happened. So these Jews go out. They're not willing to say, well, you have your view, we have our views, we'll agree to disagree. There's a spiritual conflict here. And as long as you're in the devil's world believing the devil's doctrines, you are going to be one of the devil's disciples. You are going to be promoting his view. And, his, and just like Paul before he was saved, these Jewish religious leaders were just as hostile uh, to Paul as as he had been before he was saved. So they go out and they look from some some real scumbags down uh, uh, around uh, the, the, the marketplace, some people who are criminals, people who are uh, guilty of frauds and hoaxes and violence, and they get them together and pay them off to start a riot and to gather a mob against these Christians who were apparently meeting at a home by a man by the name of Jason. Jason isn't a, a Jewish name, so this is probably one of the Gentiles. And they they surrounded the house, and they began to chant and to yell. And remember, they don't have electric lights, so they probably had torches. And this was a mob scene that threatened the very life of, of Paul and his uh, his companions. And so he understood. So when uh, when we read in First Thessalonians two two, uh, talking I mean two one that their coming was not in vain, it produced uh, a, a result. There were a, a huge multitude of Gentiles, a number of leading women, and some some uh, Jews that trusted in Jesus Christ as savior and then and this is uh, indicated in first Thess 2:13 at the end of this section as Paul summarizes it he says for this reason we also thank God uh, we also thank God that uh, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. So their coming was not in vain. It wasn't, uh, wasn't meaningless. And then Paul goes on to talk about what had happened prior to this. When, before he came to Thessalonica, he said, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, 
as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So this wasn't a, a unique or a distinct situation. It was very definitely uh, a pattern for Paul. In Philippi, uh, they were also uh, mobbed. They were arrested. Uh, their, their Roman citizenship wasn't even uh, sought after, they, it, and they were beaten with rods one of three times. Uh, Paul says that they were beaten with rods. Uh, he was also whipped by the Jews, uh, 40 lashes less one, on a number of occasions. And this is all described in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 11. So we see that, that, that this is what happened. And the same kind of thing happened in Thessalonica in Acts 16.22. And 20 to 24 talks about the reaction after the mob came and they were taken before the city magistrates. We're told in Acts 16.22, then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Uh, this was in Philippi. Um, this is what had happened there. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So here, this is what happens when you can, this is one of the kinds of things that can happen when you run into the buzzsaw that is Satan's world system. And it demands physical courage, and it demands moral courage, and for the believer, it demands spiritual courage. And that's where we will begin next time looking at what the Bible teaches about courage, the doctrine of spiritual courage. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, reflect on the Word. We recognize that each of us is, is in the world, though we're not of the world, and that we are protected by the Lord Jesus Christ. He watches over us, and he has given us uh, the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to encourage us, uh, and to embolden us even in the midst of hostility. But we have to learn to trust your word. We have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as a result of our study of your word today that we might come to understand more how we are to emulate uh, the Apostle Paul and his command, uh, his compatriots as they faced the hostility of the devil's world and went into the a vortex of the angelic conflict, a place where we all ha can have tremendous peace and stability because the vortex doesn't touch us. We are protected by uh, the wall of fire, but our mission is to be faithful in presenting the word of God, the gospel of Christ to the world around us. And we pray that you might give us the courage to do that in Christ's name. Amen.